you know, in the broader urbanist community, those types of plans are seen as, you know, the pariah of all pariahs in the history of the field. Um, Hi. Hey. Hi, baby. So we had a great chat with Eamon. So excited for people to listen to this. I think for me, some of the things that were really, really cool to learn more about is just naming the things that go into urban planning and design as you think about a city and city. What, what makes a city walkable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to teach Jennifer not to do these inflections. Uh, <laughs> Cute, right? I, I'm I'm excited for this episode. Uh, I love urban design as a complete and utter amateur. I don't know anything about about urban design, but I feel like I like it, you know. And I want to learn more. And uh, as we as we discussed on the recording, um, walkability is a new word in my dictionary, mm -hmm. and I really love it because it kind of gave me a way to describe what I like right. about an urban design. And Eamon was just amazing in explaining. He's just in such a you know great position to explain these concepts to people. So I'm, I'm yeah. excited and I'm looking forward to everyone to yeah. uh, listen to Eamon. Yeah. Oh my God, you're graphic. I just noticed Power Hour with Jennifer Kamara. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, did your producer do that? <laughs> my producer did it. He took my LinkedIn profile picture and uh, basically, but he's so great. He's been doing well. Thanks, honey. Uh, yeah, Italy was totally worth it. <laughs> yeah, this is the one of the other reasons I decided to marry much in yeah, yeah. the fact that he can fly me places, which he we've only oh, done totally. two two such trips. So we gotta we I gotta get more bang for my buck on this one. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of which, I know that we were a little late to this podcast today. So yeah. and I know we both have an on and off again relationship with time. What happened? Uh what happened? Um what I'll, I'll tell you, I'll document the events. And then, you know, as I was in the shower 15 minutes ago, before I <laughs> meal five minutes ago, I'll tell you a little bit about my reflections on why this happened. But yeah, my morning, what did I do? I slept so much. I slept like 10 hours. So I woke up. Oh, that's at, nice. I woke up at like 10, 1030 um, after having like a really cozy dinner out with a couple of good friends who live around the corner. And then we went to their house and watched Hocus Pocus because October is here, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but today <laughs> I, I woke up and I was like, it's a rainy day in New York. So it's like the perfect day to just kind of like cozy up and be at home. So I just kind of pottered around my house in my bathrobe and, you know, took folded laundry and unloaded the dishwasher and Swiffered and then like had a cup of coffee and some toast and read the newspaper. And like, it was just a cozy morning. And then I was like, well, I'm not going to be able to run and eat all the next <laughs> hour and a half. So this will have to be pushed back 10 to 15 minutes. <laughs> oh, I see. Um, you lost track so of time. I lost track of time. Well, I also was a little bit aspirational with what I could achieve with my day. I think one re one of the many reasons you and I are friends, Jen, is because we like, <laughs> we want it all out of life. Like we yeah. want everything to 110%. Like not only did I want 
my leisure, like I wanted to clean a little bit today, all before 2 p.m. I wanted to <laughs> go for a run, but like go for the longer run. So I had to right size that. I wanted to like <laughs> drop off the compost two blocks away. And when I was having my lunch, I wanted it to be like a nice lunch and not just like a grab bag of things from the fridge. So right. it kind of reminds me of a moment, one of like the early moments in our friendship when you came to my family's place for Thanksgiving and you walked in the door and we were like getting... <laughs> Uh, we were like making a snack for ourselves, you, me, and Daniela. And like, it was my mom and my family and like a bunch of family friends or whatever who were around the kitchen. And they were like, what can we get you guys to eat? And you were very specific. You were like, I want a scopet face sandwich in the oven with melted cheese on top. And that's it. That's the only thing I want. I don't want any sandwich. I want the one with melted cheese on top. And everybody was like, okay. You're like, that's all that is to say. Sometimes for people like us who want it all and then some, fitting it all in into like the normal space time continuum can be really hard. Yeah, um, totally. Which then makes you 10 minutes late for everything. Like that was the case today. Totally. And by 10 and minutes, I obviously meant 14 minutes. I love but, yeah. the like neighborhood runs too. We also have like a four mile loop and then a six mile loop and then you, you can extend or like put them together. Yeah. Yeah. And I like ending them with like stopping by our coffee shop and maybe getting a breakfast taco um, I almost did that. I almost did that, and I didn't do it today. <laughs> like, I want to let you know. I appreciate it. I almost indulged, and I stopped it. <laughs> it would have been fine because mm. I totally, I love you, and I get it, and I would have totally yeah. understood. But uh, I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that you're here. Uh, I'm so excited to learn about urban planning because I don't know nearly enough about it. How do you think about urban planning? Yeah, so I think I always had just a fascination with cities, with architecture, with urban design, even though I didn't know when I was a kid what urban design was. Um, and it was sort of not superficial, but I always knew there was like all of these decisions that were happening in the background that made a beautiful park the way it was, or that made a really vibrant neighborhood the way it was, or, you know, any number of things, or made, you know, Paris such a pleasant place to move through in a way that other cities maybe aren't. And I think that superficial interest suddenly became a little bit more real when I moved to San Francisco after college for a job that was not in urban planning, but uh, was sort of experiencing the city and growing to love this city. And at a, um, I would say it was two weekends into my arrival in San Francisco when my roommate, Scott, who I now live 10 minutes away from in New York and who I got dinner and watched Hocus Pocus with last night. Um, when Scott and I were going out on a Saturday night and I was like, Scott, I'll go down and like try to hail us a cab. And he was like, wait, there's this new app called Uber that has arrived in the app. I remember. You can hail a cab with your phone. I was like, wow. I actually right. don't even think it was Uber. I think it was Lyft and it was the uh, and the rage was all the pink mustache on the grill, front grill of the car, pink mustache, which at one point Scott stole or like asked the Lyft driver if he could have. So it became our third roommate at one point. Um, the pink mustache that is, but all that is to say, <laughs> that was the moment when I arrived in San Francisco in 2012. And I went on to live there for five years and saw this yeah. change radically and rapidly over my time there in a way that I found really disheartening and destabilizing. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, I, you know, was looking at the city that I was growing to love 
um, sort of transform before my eyes in a way that, you know, was not equitable, that was displacing longtime residents, especially residents of color. I lived, you know, 10 to 20 minutes down the road from what used to be the Harlem of the West, the Fillmore district, and is now very much not that, um, aside from some lingering murals and, you know, maybe, re maybe residents who have, um, you know, property tax protection or whatever. Yeah. Um, the point being, I saw all this change happening and my origin story in the field of urban planning was really around like sort of a sub-branch of urban planning, which I would call community development. Um, and I served on the board of a, of a neighborhood based on profit in uh, a neighborhood to the south of the Mission District. Um, in many which, in many ways, the Mission District is thought of as sort of like the crucible of gentrification in San Francisco, longtime Latino neighborhood, mm -hmm. uh, with a very strong legacy of community organizing and advocacy that has seen you know a lot of change over the past ten to twenty years um, through housing development, um, gentrification, which is a term we can maybe unpack at a later point, but um, gentrification that led to displacement of longtime small businesses and residents. So yeah. I was working in this neighborhood to the south of the Mission District with a lot of community leaders who were seeing what was happening just to the north of their neighborhood. And they were um, they were interested in improving quality of life in their neighborhood. So, you know, reducing the vacancy rate for small businesses along their main corridor, um, making it safer for kids going to school to cross the street, uh, carving out space that was dedicated to cars to repurpose into plazas and small public spaces that people could linger and spend time in and where local food vendors could post up. And I was sort of working on the very tactical and grassroots work of like organizing local community members um, to understand what their needs were and then translate those into physical and like programmatic improvements to that neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and I was also sort of translating those needs up to our city government partners who we worked with. Um, who were maybe the funding sources for these or our implementation partners for these projects, mm -hmm. um, which ranged widely. So that was sort of my origin story in the field is really this sort of like community-led notion of urban planning uh, and community development. And I think like the flip side of that approach is what you maybe think of when you think of like Houseman's Parrots or Robert Moses in New York City, okay. which is sort of these big strong men who are uh, have a vision for an entire city and um, mm. with the wave of a wand, um, can, you know, see a major infrastructure overhaul to a city happen, you know, overnight. And I don't mean literally overnight, of course, but, um, you know, these, these sort of big plans, which, um, in some ways are super inspiring and lead to the, you know, unique vibe that we know of and love in Paris with those sort of wide boulevards and tree-lined streets, um, but in other ways can lead to really negative consequences because as we know in New York City, for example, Robert Moses's highway program and build out led to, you know, mass erasure and displacement of longtime immigrant communities, black and brown communities, um, in order to make way for these big plans and big projects. Yeah. Do you feel like we're learning from this example in New York City and the impact it had? And for instance, in Hausman's Paris, where we know we have these more ghettos now that are outside the center of Paris, do you feel like we're learning from that in places like San Francisco or still not so much? I think we're learning from it, but the we is also like up for debate there. Mm -hmm. uh, those, um, 
you know, in the broader urbanist community, those types of plans are seen as, you know, the pariah of all pariahs in the history of the field. That being said, we are not the only ones who govern how a city is shaped, um, especially in the U.S. Uh, you know, the, the fabric of our cities is increasingly shaped by private actors who are not, maybe don't operate in city government or on behalf of a community-based organization, but instead operate on behalf of real estate development interests or a private company, which has a major property stake in a certain neighborhood or section of the city. Think Google in the west side of New York City. Um, so when you start bringing in these like private actors that have different incentive systems than the public good, but also have to, you know, and instead have to sort of, um, have a healthy bottom line, it starts to do tricky things for the, the neighborhood, the people who live there to see. Yeah. In right. Places. So, right. But in many ways we've gone leaps and bounds as a field in terms of grounding some of those highways that have historically divided neighborhoods or um, reclaiming some of those um, car choke streets for small scale plazas or public spaces, you know, in uh-huh. terms of the pandemics overnight in, you know, from virtually overnight from March to August, 2020, we saw cities adopt the type of place-based interventions and updates and upgrades um, that we, you know, been advocating for as a field for, for, you know, at least 10 years, if not decades. And I'm talking yeah. about, you know, those neighborhood streets that you saw closed so that kids can yeah. have a place to play and people can have room to walk and move from A to B without um, fear of too much proximity and exposure to COVID. I'm talking about the, you know, reclaiming cars, car spaces at one major commercial corridor so that restaurants could provide additional outdoor seating. Mm-hmm. All of these types of investments and, uh, you know, upgrades that were, were made in response to a public health crisis, you know, have, have been in the interest of like the urban planning field, uh, for many years. So to see those yeah. adopt overnight was really exciting. Um, even if long over. Yeah, no, really exciting. And we were both in New York city in the yeah. heart during, during all of this, yeah. during COVID, I remember in March, we went from, uh, everything's normal to next two days. Everyone's getting all the groceries off the shelves till the next week, the streets are completely empty and it feels like a zombie apocalypse is happening. Um, like Machin and I would take runs down the middle of Fifth Avenue and it felt wild that it was completely empty. It felt like we were in, in the middle of a movie. Um, but I'll just say really appreciated this attention to having outdoor spaces. Like for us, being able to go walk on the West Side Highway and by this park that's over there and really appreciated the High Line and Little Island now, I think is what it's called. It just opened up. We've since moved away from New York City, but all these outdoor spaces have been so worthwhile and knowing that this is something that came out of COVID to your point. I know with tech, we went leaps and bounds with having now Zoom meetings and not needing to travel as much. Granted, we have Zoom fatigue, but in your industry, we've seen thankfully more appreciation for outdoor spaces and such. You kind of alluded to that, thank goodness, in 
the blink of an eye, we seem to make so much progress here. Who's responsible for approving these decisions? Sounds like it's a combination of private actors in some cases, local government in some cases. Can you kind of paint that picture? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the situation during the pandemic in particular was a little bit of a free for all in terms of like the closed streets that you see. Um, you know, I don't know if this is now a model that's been adopted around the world of like, uh, sort of play streets or shared streets or open streets where you essentially block off car access, um, aside from maybe local traffic and allow it for sort of open use. Um, those were, uh, that's a department of transportation initiative. They actually have a program called the open streets program that's been in place for a while. Um, but obviously now has seen a rapid expansion over the course of the pandemic. They really lean on actively engaged residents to manage those on a day-to-day basis, um, which is great because it's like, you know, you're asking residents to shape their own public space and bring out the barricades, you know, every day. So yeah. they can't get in and they can <laughs> activate them with play spaces and equipment, et cetera. Um, hold, you know, I was just walking by one in Cobble Hill a couple of weeks ago and, um, you know, they had musical performances on one of them and like, you know, it's, it's, it's really great to see that on a recurring basis. That being said, the more you lean on residents to open and close and program and maintain their own public spaces, the more you run into equity issues because not every resident in every neighborhood has the time, uh, available time or money or resources to be able to organize and build this out. If you're a night nurse in right. somewhere in Queens, you know, can you really be relied on no. to manage an open streets initiative on a day-to-day basis? So what we're starting to see and the open streets program, I'm sure it is aware of it, aware of this is like a lot of inequity in terms of where these open streets are located and how successful they are over time um, based on factors like, you know, average income, um, which is often tied to race because of our legacy, right. structural racism and disinvestment in our cities. So, there is one really good example of uh, in Jackson Heights. Um, I forget the exact location, but in Jackson Heights, Queen, which is Queens, which is one of the uh, most diverse neighborhoods in America. I think it's like more languages spoken in one, you know, X mile radius than anywhere else in the world. Um, oh wow! There was a really good example of a open street that has like maintained over time and is thought of as one of the most successful models for mm-hmm. you know like a uh, lower median income neighborhood taking on that type of initiative uh, with resident order. So, yeah, that's awesome. These examples are really helpful too. So would love to maybe touch on a couple of those. I was peeking about some of your website and looking at your past work. Maybe we can touch on a few examples of projects that you've worked on to just make this a lot more real and understandable for me and, and other people that that are newer to the space. Totally. I'll start with one that's kind of a good like lay of the land um, project, and then I can dive into the Bay Area one. Um, So as background, I work at GEL, which is an urban planning design and research firm. We operate as a consultancy. So um, we work for city governments, foundations, some private developers, some private corporations, often in partnership with community-based organizations to design cities for and with people. Um, our whole origin story is like basically that in the seventies, our 
co-founder Jan Gell was this modernist architect in Copenhagen designing all these beautiful buildings for people, um, institutions and residences, et cetera. And his wife, who is a, a child psychologist, tapped him on the shoulder one day and was like, Jan, you're building all these beautiful <laughs> buildings with clean lines um, you know, that look aesthetically beautiful, but you're not thinking at all about the experience of these places. Uh, yeah. about what people's needs are and then using that to inform design. Um, and in cases yeah. like we were talking about earlier with Robert Moses and Baron Hausman, those are not folks who were thinking about the human experience. They were right. you know, imposing big plans without any regard to community engagement. Community yeah. Plans. And yeah, so it's, um, that's sort of the, the approach we bring to the table is like, we're often focused on elevating the lived experience, of the places where we live, um, and making sure that that is like the chief input into a design process when we're designing a public space or a streetscape or a mobility network. Um, a lot of our focus is on public space, the space between buildings, think your streets, your sidewalks, your parks, your plazas, all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, we think about how the ground floor meets the street in a massive yeah. apartment building or on like the charming main street that you walk through to get your coffee. So. One project, one way we do that is we collect a lot of data um, to try to understand um, through observation and by listening to people um, through a range of methods. We collect a lot of data about the lived experience of places. And one project that we did starting in um, November 2020 was we worked with Knight Foundation, which is a major foundation that works in cities across the country. And they have a very big focus on public space and civic engagement and civic participation. So they work partner with city governments and community-based organizations in cities across the country. And they, um, they help fund public space investments, especially in areas that historically have last lacked access to public space. Um, so we worked with them actually not to design a public space, but to actually look at the, their portfolio of investments. We focused on seven or eight public space projects from the, the past 10 years that they've invested in and actually tried to like uncover the impact that they had on all, not only, you know, use. So like yeah. people using the space, how active is it on a day-to-day -day basis, but also tried to understand this like ripple effect of other outcomes. So like how is the space uh, impacting local businesses or youth development, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I'll speak to one example that I think is a really good example, a good example of a public space that sort of, came out of this like community led process and that's Ella Fitzgerald park, um, in Detroit. Okay. So as you may know, um, Detroit, once one of the, once, once one of the major population centers of the U S you know, motor city industry town, um, sort of had a fall through, uh, you know, deindustrialization, um, and eventual fiscal bankruptcy that basically leaves it in a situation where it um, has sort of the, the urban footprint of a place that was built for a population that it can no longer maintain. So what that means is you have a lot of vacant land. Um, there was a lot of white flight from the city. Uh, so uh, what that means is, you know, white folks seeing right. economic hard times coming or fears of safety that are often rooted in racism. Um, fleeing to the suburbs. That is a story that's been the case in many American cities, and it was especially uh, present in Detroit, um, which now, you know, it has very, very high Black population. Um, yeah. And many of which uh, live in concentrated poverty. 
So the Fitzgerald neighborhood um, is one such neighborhood that has a lot of vacant lots, a lot of underused buildings, um, and but also a severe lack of access to public space. Um, so the way that Knight Foundation worked with the local leaders, community-based organizations, the city of Detroit, was they actually developed a sort of a plan for piecing together um, a lot of vacant lots and creating this sort of public space network in the neighborhood that's sort of a patchwork of vacant lots, um, kind of centering in this like main park, now Ella Fitzgerald Park, which was designed with a really like community-led lens in mind. So um, there was a range of, you know, a lot happens before you see a park end up in your neighborhood, um, at least in uh, the best examples. So in Ella Fitzgerald Park's case, uh, they did a whole range of different types of community engagement to inform the design, eventual design of the space. So that meant holding a, you know, pop-up bike repair station um, to do two things. One, just like get input from folks um, on what they'd like to see in terms of bike infrastructure at the park. And also, too, to demonstrate that there was a community, a subset of the community that actually wanted to bike and um, needed bike infrastructure. Because there were some doubts about, like, do we actually need, you know, this to be a comfortable place to bike around? Uh, and just holding that pop-up bike repair event to, you know, draw out community engagement was like a way to just prove that, no, there's like a captive audience here that needs a place that's comfortable to bike through and around. It's a small scale public space. It's nothing fancy. It's not, nothing over the top, but it has, you know, the basics of urban quality in place in terms of just like aesthetic appeal with local art that speaks to the neighborhood character and identity. Their street crossing. They actually like painted this sort of music note. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, graphic on the street crossing. That's to the tune of Dream a Little Dream of Me, which is by Ella Fitzgerald, the park's namesake. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So there's, I'm this is, I pictures. think, an example of something, of something that, um, you know, the, the way a community-led process can result in a park that really feels true to place. And what we saw in this study is that this type of, you know, that type of community-led process made, and the park itself made people feel more attached to and proud of their neighborhood and made them more civically engaged. It also, that was one of the public spaces that weathered the pandemic better than others in our study. Um, it saw more consistent use and resident-led programming because people felt like they had a stake in the park. Um, yeah. Whereas the places that maybe were less community-led sort of landed in like a spaceship in the neighborhood. Yeah. Didn't see as much use in the pandemic. So, yeah. Totally. And it makes so much sense, right? We are social creatures. We need to interact with each other. We're not meant to be alone. We're meant to be hanging out, playing with, with our friends, seeing our partners or our coworkers or our neighborhood baker as we're getting our bread in the morning. So my brother lives in Michigan close by, and we've visited this region before when he had just moved. He lived close to here and he worked at a gas station. And this is historically also a dangerous neighborhood. And we also took a drive by and just saw sadly all the homes that are being abandoned in this region so it's just so nice to see this great use of the space and the land and bringing back the sense of community and just liveliness to the area oh and the other thing too i'll just say that was a good you know what we find is that i think so many people think of public space as an extra 
thing. Yeah. It's like, but we, it's need, a critical we need thing, housing, right? we need small business, et cetera. But what we find again and again with the work we do in cities and on public spaces is that public space really punches above its weight. Um, right. It is a super visible uh, investment and improvement to a neighbor that, neighborhood that that can then catalyze other investments and improvements mm-hmm. um, and can sort of like prove that there's demand for good quality spaces. We also find yeah. it's like it could be a bit of an economic development engine uh, as well. So mm-hmm. um, they um, partnered with the workforce development program in the city to actually construct and like maintain the park. So now that the, now the park is actually generating, has generated jobs and continues to generate jobs in terms of, you know, hiring a local, uh, local folks formerly incarcerated who are in need of jobs. Um, not to mention the park is now sort of provides this like captive meeting ground that small businesses can take advantage of by locating themselves, you know, in walking distance, um, to the park. Yeah. So if folks go to the park, they can then go grab a cup of coffee here. Right. Again, just to the point of hiring and formerly incarcerated people, giving them another shot to the point of you can now go to the park and get a coffee. Just again, infusing this sense of fun things to do and interacting with more people, seeing the humanity in people is so, so important in bringing people from diverse backgrounds together. I love that this foundation wanted to look at the impact. Is that as common? Um, it is common with foundations because foundations have money to spend. Um, <laughs> so foundations are really good with evaluation and monitoring. I'm doing another impact evaluation project around play right now. Actually going to be going back to Detroit in a couple of weeks and then, to Buffalo okay. and, or, and then before to Buffalo and Rochester to look at a bunch of play space, skate park throughout those regions and see how they've impacted kids' lives and community lives. So that's very common with foundations. And I think city governments and community-based organizations sometimes have less budget, time, resources available to do this in a way that, you know, is doable (laughs) Um, because it takes time to thoughtfully monitor your impact. But a lot of the work we do with city governments is start to sort of like build the case for this ongoing data collection as a way to monitor whether a public space is working and then tweak accordingly. And sometimes that comes with cost savings in terms of maintenance or you know, reviews, et cetera. Um, and we also like to make the case for why, you know, it, it's also sort of this impact assessment is a really good uh, storytelling tool. Um, so when we collect data and can gener- like generate set of insights on the impact of the space and opportunities for improvement it tends to be like a really good storytelling tool for i think your mayors your department heads your like local civic leaders who otherwise might not see the value of public space but when they see like a bunch of data qualitative quantitative and everywhere in between you know it talks um and kind of like can tell a really compelling story about the impact of these investments on place in a way that Sometimes they're often forgotten and pushed to the side. Yeah. And to your point, shifting the narrative away from this is an add-on, but to more of, no, this is the center of interaction and economic development. If you think about about your great cities, um, you know, the most iconic neighborhoods or areas of any city you think of, there's always a public space at the center. Yeah. You know, think about, you know, Times Square, like 
it's the economic engine of New York City, and mm -hmm. it's a public space in the center. A public space we actually worked on when we first moved to the States or opened up our New York studio. Walkability is huge for me. I love cities that are walkable. Like we live in a region of Austin that's very walkable. The U.S., however, if we look on a grand scale, is not built for walkability or kind of mixing and matching so much. What is your take on that? Um, that's by design. Yeah, the uh, cars. Many, Ameri many American cities came of age when, like, the car was the you know promising mode of transport of the future, and we're paying the price in yeah. so many ways after designing our cities in that way. Uh, we're paying the price in the health of our people. Um, so that comes into play. Not only like the missed opportunity from being able to walk around and just having to drive everywhere, you know, that shaves off your average daily physical activity quite a bit. But it also has major impacts on um, your exposure to pollution, um, your vulnerability to what we call urban heat islands or um, extreme heat. You know, it's not bettered when you have uh, asphalt everywhere. That only exacerbates the effects of extreme heat. Oh, wow. I didn't think um, about that. Yeah. And then, you know, so that leads to the climate piece, which speaks for itself, our reliance on cars. Um, and my, you know, electric vehicles aren't going to, make anything radically better because um, we're still going to be in our cars all the time. Yeah. Around. <laughs> but, um, and then it obviously has equity implications as well, because the, you know, the first neighborhoods to be displaced or relocated um, were erased uh, to make way for major car infrastructure, you know, were black and brown neighborhoods. Um, and that is the story right. of nearly every American city. If you look at the, where, where highways were built out um, and you know, what neighborhoods have to pay the price for those. So yeah. all that is to say it's, you know, it, our cities were designed very intentionally to prioritize cars over people. Um, and there are so many great civic leaders in cities across the U.S. who are working to reverse that design and undesign our way out of that mess. Um, and that takes shape in a lot of different ways, whether it's just like, implementing more traffic calming measures on a basic street. So when we talk about traffic calming, what we mean are like speed bumps or like raised intersections. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you'll see around Austin, if you're walking around your neighborhood, that there's sometimes where you see like, uh, when you come up to a four-way intersection, the, the road kind of slopes upward mm -hmm. and then it's sort of like a plat it almost plateaus. That's what mm -hmm. we would call a traffic calming measure because it forces the cars to sort of like slow down. take a little slow down before they stop and pass through the intersection. And it makes it more comfortable and inviting for people to walk around. Um, another you know, type of intervention that we talk about is just um, the climate friendliness of the street. Um, you know, you go into so many cities that are car centric and there's just no street trees on the sidewalk. Uh, yeah. So no wonder people aren't walking because there's no place it's to so take hot. shelter from the elements and it's so hot. And I'm sure you experienced that in Austin quite a bit. <laughs> um, but you experienced it in New York as well and the neighborhoods yeah. that have lower incidence of tree canopy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the other, the other, so if there's sort of the basic safety piece, um, we have to talk about like the three, these like 12 quality criteria and they're organized into three buckets, like protection. So you need basic yeah. protection and like a sense of, um, safety. Safety. So that means safety from traffic and crashes, um, means safety from the elements and like extreme weather, whether that's through shading trees that create microclimates, you know, like mm -hmm. next time you walk in a neighborhood that is well shaded, 
And yeah. if you've been in an unshaded neighborhood, you'll notice it feels a lot cooler because the trees mm-hmm. are doing good work for you. Um, and you really feel it and it makes a difference in a way that, you know, simple shading structures or awnings cannot. So, um, I don't know if you've noticed, I've got a full on. Yeah. Yeah. You've got that cool, cool so apartment. I love, great micro I love climb. the trees. Yeah. <laughs> but then the other thing after you've accounted for safety is just like comfort. It needs to be an inviting place to walk through, not yeah. just a safe place to walk through. So like we're talking about, you know, no major obstructions on the sidewalk that make it easy to get from A to B. Um, you know, occasional places to sit and stop and like take a breather, like public seating. Um, and then on top of that, there's this like delight factor that really separates like a good public space or street to, to walk through from like a great and outstanding one. And mm-hmm. when we talk about delight, we're talking about like, okay, there's aesthetic appeal to the ground floors that you're moving through. We talk a lot, you know, we think a lot about sort of like the amount of stimulus that a person requires to feel engaged and invited on a streetscape. So when you think about places that are walkable and vibrant, usually there's like a certain number of entrances every 300 feet or so, and a certain amount of like transparency or visibility into the storefront. Um, the places that don't feel walkable tend to be like super large floor plates on the ground floor, um, reflective glass that you can't see into. So right. we, we work a lot with uh, developers and with cities to make sure that the ground floor feels really exciting and active and vibrant, that you have a lot of like mm. reasonably sized storefronts, a lot of entries, a lot of aesthetic appeal through signage, plantings, you know, couple it feels warm and, and inviting yeah exactly and if you don't have that it's more likely that somebody's gonna like call an uber hail a cab or, right you know get into their own car um, so that's sort of like that that delight factor that is harder to implement especially when the bones of what you're working with in terms of a ground floor are not very good yeah totally it's fascinating because you're literally describing exactly what i love so much in a space or in a neighborhood is this element of it feels very interactive and inviting i would say is how i would describe it where you can walk here there's a nice park where you have these dogs running around or these kids and then you have these cool storefronts that that feel very inviting it's bustling it's bubbly and it's just very cool to hear you describe that what countries or cities do you see doing a really good job at this would you kind of say are crushing it on this front i would say um, Copenhagen is sort of our, like where our HQ is, where our story starts. And I sometimes bristle at the mentions of Copenhagen as this like exemplary, like happiest place in the world, urbanist paradise, <laughs> because, you know, it has its limitations as a place that's, you know, predominantly white in a Nordic climate, you know, Northern and Western, um, that being said. I was there for a couple of weeks before your wedding, um, working out of the office there. And it was really easy, really quickly to understand what makes it such a livable place. You really feel like the environment is working in your favor as you move through that place. Um, you, it takes you 10 minutes to, you know, get from A to B anywhere by bike. And that bike ride is usually pleasant and you're surrounded by nature for part of it. And um there's virtually no sort of like jarring uh encounters with cars or pedestrians of a like car often, gonna hit you yeah like <laughs> i often like have, you know after 35 minutes of biking into my office here in new york and feel like i've like gone to battle 
Oh, no. You come in. I made it. This is my war story from the morning. Sweating. But yeah, so there's that. Um, That works really well about Copenhagen. And you see that sort of the, they embrace the sort of the small in terms of their surface structure. That being said, they're also working from a great base. You know, it's a European city where the development happened at that small scale. So growing into that livable exemplar that it is now is like really possible. Um, to give like a flip example of a US city that I think is doing a good job of like, of embracing the human scale. I'm actually not gonna give a US city. I'm gonna give a Mon- Montreal as an example. Nice. Um, so I've not been so, to Copenhagen or Montreal. So uh, I, we I gotta get Montreal there. so much. Maybe I'm biased because my mom was born there and like, I feel like I have some, like I, I try to get there often in the same way that like Mexico City is sort of my other North America. Oh yes. Whole. Well, um, let's go to Montreal together. Yeah, Montreal is just like dreamy. Um, I really like it because it feels like a distinctly North American city, but with like infusions of Berlin and Paris. Paris, obviously, just because of the French cultural influence, but it has sort of like a little bit of that grit to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But in some places, you feel like you could be in like Chicago, where it's like you have these, you know, wide neighborhoods. Skyscrapers. Et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. They've done a really good job in Montreal of... um, Closing and repurposing a lot of their streets for for play and just like incorporating mm. seating. Uh, so two thumbs up to Montreal. Um, I love the experience of Mexico City just because it's um, it's you know more car centric than just as car centric <laughs> as many other sprawling cities, but there is something about its sprawl that like is fascinating in the same way that like. You know, I think it's, I like it better than LA, but like there is a certain cachet to LA as well, because it's just like up this limitless city. I mean, I think Mexico city does a really good job on a neighborhood by neighborhood level of like making it, making their, um, you know, incorporating quality public spaces, um, incorporating really quality transit connections. Mexico city has a great Metro and they also have a really good bus rapid transit system. We often poo-poo buses in the U.S. because people associate them with lower-income individuals and don't think they're unreliable, um, yeah. which is loaded in all sorts of biases and yeah. racism. Not, yeah. yeah. But buses, when they're given the right space and conditions to work with, can be really effective and more flexible transit systems mm-hmm. than, say, like a subway or a metro rail. So I really appreciate their like alternative transit. Yeah. It's also better for the environment, fewer people driving their cars, commuting. Yeah. And I think Europe, for instance, does such a great job with buses and trams. And uh, yeah, I think it speaks to the earlier point we made about the US was built for cars. And we have this uh, story that we tell ourselves, right, about, oh, you must own a a car and a house and a big TV and a nice fridge (laughs) in suburbia uh, to, to have made it. Um, on the notion of diversity, I'd love to touch on this really quickly. We've we've alluded to so many examples of the implications of urban planning on diverse populations, lower income folks who get moved out of neighborhoods. We're seeing it here in Austin. We're seeing East Austin becoming such a popular neighborhood. Locals are getting pushed out because prices are grow- are rising. We've seen this in San Francisco, 
in the Bay Area in general, in New York City, what can we do more of as citizens who live in neighborhoods who really care about this and want to help? Yeah. Um, I think it's really, first thing I'll say is it's really important to disentangle gentrification from displacement. I think gentrification gets okay. like bandied around as this, I mean, certainly doesn't sound good. Gentrification, like the gentry, nobody wants to, you know, be the gentry in a historically low income area. That being yeah. said, I think gentrification is often thought of or like used as a stand in term for what, you know, what are actually improvements to quality of life. So that's where public space actually can become a really third rail issue in some neighborhoods where we I've, you know, heard of, or maybe been adjacent to projects where like a neighborhood is actually refusing certain types of public space, um, investments or quality of life improvements around their streetscapes or sidewalks or whatever, because they're, they're worried it's going to attract, um, richer, whiter folks who are then going to price them out of their homes, which I totally get because that's historically what often happens. Um, but I, I'm really conscious that everybody deserves a high quality public realm. And like the more we pit um, the quality of life and the equity agendas against each other, the more everyone loses, you know? So I'll just say that up front, like, um, you know, in neighborhood improvements don't have to equal displacement. And the way you prevent that is through a range of measures that no neighborhood, as far as I know in the US context is quite nailed. Um, a lot of times, you know, people start with housing, um, as a, as a mechanism, um, you see a lot of new development where there maybe aren't minimums for, uh, affordable housing in place within those developments. Some cities have a mandatory minimum that's could be like as high as 20, 25%, depending on the severity of their housing crisis where 20 to 25% of the units in say a new condo building have to be made available to a pool or lottery of um, folks who are eligible for affordable housing. Um, affordable sometimes has a tricky definition in cities as well. So for example, I was just talking with a friend, you know, who I was with in San Francisco last night. Yeah. Um, and she technically lived in an affordable unit in a building in San Francisco and was paying 1400 a month for it. And that was yeah. like, and that, meet, that met the affordable requirements that were in place by the city of San Francisco in partnership with that developer. Um, right. So, you know, when people talk about like, what do you mean? Like displacement, we built all these new, you know, when a housing developer might say like, oh, we built this and we, you know, made 25% of this building made, uh, accessible to, you know, people who meet the affordable requirements. Um, it's important to interrogate what that definition is because sometimes it actually isn't a real reflection of the income inequality that many cities are dealing with. Um, so I would say like housing is one tool, but it's not the only tool. Um, I think often, or new housing development is not the only tool. Another um, measure that some cities are exploring is around like uh, property tax freezes. So like, if a neighborhood is sort of in that like pre-gentrification stage and maybe is home to a lot of longtime black and brown homeowners, putting a freeze for those longtime owners' um, property taxes in place so that they don't rise over time as land value skyrockets in the neighborhood. The same is often explored for, or has been like explored as an opportunity for small business rents 
um, as well to make sure, because, you know, I think often what's ignored when we talk about gentrification and displacement is uh, displacement of small businesses who have like long served as anchors for the neighborhood. So putting in protection yeah. for those folks is also important. But all this to say displacement is a symptom of much bigger issues around systemic racism and long-time disinvestment in neighborhoods. So what that means is like many neighborhoods that are currently getting gentrified across the U.S. were historically redlined neighborhoods as early as the 40s. If you're not familiar with redlining, it was a policy put in place by the federal government that restricted certain neighborhoods um, from accessing affordable home loans. Um, so what that meant is that, um, uh, and those certain neighborhoods were largely neighborhoods of color, nearly all neighborhoods of color. Um, so what that meant is that, you know, black and brown neighborhoods in our cities, which all of which are segregated in the U.S., have, are like generations behind in wealth accumulation. So it makes it, it, it makes them very vulnerable to displacement when new housing development comes in or property values increase radically. And like, that's where, you know, a public space or a, a sort of a urban planning issue becomes actually like an economic policy issue when you, and that's when you start to think about like, okay, is there a case for universal basic income to start to, you know, raise the floor of, right. of wealth generation, say, in the U.S.? Yeah. I'm just looking up the definition of redlining too. So it's an illegal practice in which lenders avoid providing services to individuals living in communities of color because of the race or national origin of the people who live in these communities. And it sounds like a lot of this though falls on the local government. You talked about prices, keeping prices affordable and redefining what affordable actually is and what actually makes sense there, prohibiting redlining, things like that. Also paying attention to small business rent, for instance, because that's quite important. We mentioned people need to work to be able to live and stay in their communities. How about people who live in these communities? What can they do to contribute to reducing displacement? Can they influence their local governments? Totally. Really that's where you see community or organizing and you know, activism becoming, you know, especially important. So the way, you know, many neighborhoods have been successful in the past in kind of keeping displacement or the negative effects of gentrification at bay is through like really well-organized community organizations and initiatives. So I think it's 24th Street and the mission has a mm -hmm. really, that sort of lower mission area of San Francisco has a really good legacy. And then we worked with one of their leaders and had him at a panel organization. I worked with him, forgetting his name, but they have a really good legacy of sort of like organizing local long time and new residents about around these issues and like, you know, asking for the types of policy protections and measures that they deserve. Um, yeah. but not all neighborhoods have that strong, uh, organizing Can capacity or like access to power. Right. So I'd say the key you know, for a resident, a long time or a new resident is to really think about, like, start to map what the, well, like what the power structure is in your neighborhood and like, who are the yeah. long time community organizations? Don't try to start something new, um, but try to identify the organizations or actors within your neighborhood that have been working on some of these issues for 
for years, if not, you know, generations. So, you know, yeah. we have a that's Restoration Corporation and Brooklyn Movement Center, which are two organizations that come to mind in my neighborhood that I, you know, sort of follow and try to get involved with when I can, um, that are, have long been focused on this issue. And like, I just try to be a supportive newcomer in my neighborhood for those organizations in a way that, um, is constructive and like additive and like humble toward the work that they've been and kind of differential to the work that they've been doing for a really long time. Um, so I'll just say that much, like find a local organization in your neighborhood that is like advocating for these issues because it probably exists and they're, they probably been yeah. about it in a lot more of a nuanced way than you can even imagine. Right. And why reinvent the wheel or build it from scratch when you can contribute to it? I've learned a ton about urban planning from you today. And I feel like every time we talk about it, I learn a little more. I want to transition us though to you. Amen. I feel like a lot of who you are today, though, you genuinely care about others. You have always, to me at least, it felt had an eye on diversity and inclusion and what can you do to benefit others who are less fortunate than you? Can you tell me more about what do you think influenced that? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it, you know, came from my early childhood experience of just like growing up in a restaurant environment and like a post-industrial working class, New England city, Worcester, Massachusetts. And yes, seeing the experience of my parents and like the struggles they went through as small business owners trying to make it in the States. Um, they were super successful. So like, I own that, that, you know, I also live a life of privilege, you know, by comparison to most, uh, first generation Americans, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, but growing up in the restaurant environment, I was, you know, exposed to people of all backgrounds very early in my life from like the range of folks we had as servers, as customers, as kitchen and line cooks, um, and, you know, dishwashers, et cetera. So I think just like that appreciation for, um, every person's contribution to the shared work of running that restaurant and like the humanity behind them, because in a restaurant, you know, once you open the swinging doors into the kitchen, like suddenly everybody's personal issues are on the table. Um, so contributing yeah. <laughs> witness to that and like participating in that as an expediter or as a busboy growing up in the restaurant, I think was like where I really gained my appreciation for like diversity as we talk about it um, in, uh, you know, in the day-to-day -day settings. I also think there's something, and I was thinking about this on my run um, earlier, I think there's like, it's, it's important not to ignore like the connection between what you described and like a belief in diversity and inclusion and just like downright fairness, no matter who you are. Like when we talk about diversity and inclusion, what we're really talking about is fairness. Um, and I think, uh, like my belief in like fairness for everybody and all the underdogs really stems a lot from like my Irish heritage and just the way the Irish as a people, and I mean, Irish, Irish, not Irish. Americans. Right, right. I think Irish Americans, unfortunately have by and large, maybe forgotten what the roots of their culture, um, really stand for. I think you often see Irish Americans in the U S um, 
using their white privilege, you know, to put down others. And that's been like, a, there's plenty of books about that. I think it's called like becoming white or something. Um, okay. It's a book about Irish Americans and they're like being wrapped up in oppression in the U S but the point being, um, you know, Ireland was obviously long, a long time colony. Um, yeah. The UK, my great grandfather, like died as a rebel in the forties. Like it's, so wow. like you, we think of it as distant, a distant past, but it's actually quite recent. Like my dad was mm -hmm. the reason I'm not growing up in London is because, um, my parents lived in London for, um, the eighties working in restaurants and hotels. And at a, when the, there was a, a car bomb that was set off by the IRA in central London outside Harrods, um, in the eighties, which was like a really landmark moment in the troubles, um, my dad was working at a hotel about a block away from Harrods and people started fleeing into the hotel, like with blood and shards of glass on their face to like take it's cover terrible. from the car bomb. And his boss, uh, my dad was like the, you know, the deputy manager or something. And his boss, the manager said, Brendan, go into the back room because if people hear your Irish accent, you'll become a suspect. Oh, goodness. Um, That's and about two years later, my brother was born in London and within 10 days, they had moved back to Ireland because they were like, we can't raise our child here. Um, so that just sort of is a little bit of what animates. I would, you know, I never had drawn the connection really, I think until the past, like maybe explicitly until the, maybe the past few years. And that I think there's always been this like sense, um, being Irish in a way that is like, you know, an underdog, an underdog. Yeah. Right. Um, and not to say that the oppression of the Irish at the hands of the English is in any way the same as, um, you know, black Americans at the hands of slavery, but, um, there is something I think inherent in like my own family experience and appreciation, um, mm -hmm. for all kinds that like really comes into that. So I'd say there's that, um, and then I think the other kind of moment I'd speak to, aside from just like my general origin story in the restaurant and um, being in an immigrant family is tied up in like my first year of college, um, which is, which is when I came out. Um, and for me, I would say coming out was actually, you know, while a like challenging personal experience to come to terms with, um, was a relatively seamless experience in terms of, I have a loving family and they were super supportive and, um, my, the people I had grown close to in college by that point were, you know, super embracing of it. So I am blessed to have been surrounded and continue to be surrounded with people, you know, and choose people who I right. uh, know provide that love and support. That being said, my kind of relationship to these issues of diversity, inclusion, equity, longing, justice, whatever the, the word is fairness, in just the, plain fairness, just plain fairness. It's like all we got to ask for. Um, and it's so hard to get, um, but comes from my early days, actually at my college newspaper. So I, uh, when I was in college, I worked in my college newspaper. I eventually was editor in chief. And when I started, I was a copy editor. So that meant I was the person who was like checking all the articles for typos and writing headlines and like making sure all the formatting was right before the issue went to print. And there was some ch staffing change after first semester. And then suddenly, hey man, this like 
you know, bright eyed young freshman was promoted to the head of the copy editing department in like spring of freshman year. Um, which is like an honor and also a lot of work because what it means is that you have to stay until the end of production night every night. So you're coming home yeah. like two or 3 AM, if not later, oh, um, you know, during yeah. the first year of college. So that was like, you know, already sort of like a big adjustment for me. And then in the spring of my freshman year, um, every year the seniors sort of like take over the whole production of the paper uh, the print edition for this April Fool's issue. Um, so they like produced it behind closed doors and they sent it to print. And then the rest of the staff works on like the, the regular issue that just goes on. And, um, the seniors published their April Fool's issue. And within two days, there was an uproar on campus because a lot of the articles in the April Fool's joke issue joke, um, were like racist, um, Oh goodness. Sexist, homophobic, like, like really, really nasty stuff in there that just like spoke to the challenge of, and the, yeah, just spoke to the challenge of like putting 10 seniors in a room together and having them right. like, get drunk and publish an April Fool's issue. these were acceptable fool. Yeah. And also like mostly male, all white, you know, mm. it's like every issue yeah. you can think of like went into the production of that that big blunder um and and real hurt uh that ended up falling on the pages of that April Fool's issue. What it led to was the next production night um black students on campus campus organized and staged a sit-in protest while we were um while we were producing the next real issue of the paper. So I was there as like the newly minted copy chief editing articles as yeah. uh, black students and a bunch of allies were literally staging a set of protests like next to me, you know, around all of us. Yeah. And we just like, you know, we carried on with the production of the issue. Um, I was wrapped up in my own relationship to power in that moment where even though mm -hmm. I was thinking about it in those words, but like, it's like, oh God, I've just like entered into this organization that I was like growing to enjoy working in. I you know, respect some of these people who are the new leaders at the organization, but like, they're also dealing with this whole situation so horribly. Right. Like, do I and leave? you have your own influence. Yeah. I'm like, do I, is this my problem? Should I not have, you know, should I not have come to production night tonight? Should I be sitting down with these protesters or should I be? So that was like a moment that I think really, um, forced me to, confront like racism really up close and personal in a way that I hadn't before. Yeah. Um, because that was, you know, the, the main grievance with the issue and the rightful grievance yeah. with the April Fool's issue. Um, what but did it you also end up doing? Led... So, I mean, I stayed on and a lot of people left the staff and I stayed on because I'm maybe I'm a bit of a glutton for punishment and was like, no, we need to like rebuild how this paper works. Like this is the main campus newspaper for Georgetown. Like, we can't just let it well, you know, fall by the wayside yeah. to like bad reporting and like right. fair reporting to the fairness conversation. Um, so I became really focused um, in the preceding years on sort of building up our capacity to like report in a way that was fair and equitable and representative of the diversity on our campus and um, to make sure that our staff was reflective of that diversity. Did I solve everything? In a way, no. 
but like but it starts with the intention to and staying on yeah. to make a difference and make a totally. change yeah i'm very proud of you for staying on yeah um it was a but yeah it was like a super public and like crazy experience and like to be placed in that and like the cesspool that is a college campus like right off the bat um it was pretty wild and i think you know to close that loop you know i think another thing um i've realized over time is like well you know the historic oppression of the irish or the historic oppression of you know the gay the lgbt community mm -hmm. the gay community you know that i consider myself a part of um and the historic oppression and very ongoing oppression of the black community in the u.s are not the same they're all sort of like wrapped up in the same web um, right of well we don't need to go with too philosophical but they're all wrapped up in the same web and i think like the more i can see um my relationship to those forms of oppression um the more thoughtful and like responsive i can be um in the day-to-day -day, so yeah and i think it's work we all have to do right that resonates like for me, being a woman of color, both of these groups of people have historically in some way, shape or form been oppressed. And that's different, for instance, from how the LGBTQ community has been oppressed. But I resonate with what you're saying because I can, I understand what that's like. And even though I may not understand exactly what this other form of oppression is like, I can empathize and want so badly for us to just treat each other with respect and kindness and love, because at the end of the day, we're also similar. We all want to do something good. We want to love the people we love and be loved and be seen and heard. So how do we talk more to each other and, and treat each other better? And not only treat um, each other better, but as individuals demand that, you know, right. institutions treat us better too. Right. Uh, and you know, that's yeah. really hard to do. I would say, amen. Like yeah, just like, demand what, what, that. What is, what is the vessel and how, like, what's, is that hubris? Like what is, you know, what gives me the chutzpah to be able to do that? Yeah. Uh, but I love about you the fact that I would say you're one of the most confident human beings. I know you have a lot of self-love and self-respect and you demand this. Where do you think that comes from for you? Hmm. <sighs> Yes, thanks. Maybe that's my, maybe that's my, maybe that's written <laughs> in the stars. That about maybe you. that's my Leo lion <laughs> energy. I wonder um, if it has to do with your family or parents. I like think you it mentioned, does. I think they like, went there a lot. They yeah. loved you. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, my parents, as you know, are big personalities and like, you know, yeah, the great. most and all that. And I think they like really allowed me to become the fullest version of myself and to embrace the fullest version of myself and to like, they're also, um, I would say one thing about my parents is they're really good judges of character. Um, and you know, yeah, would even with their success at their business, it's not about judgment, but they would, they have, how should I say? they really like stick clung to their roots and like still surround themselves with salt of the earth people. And, mm. um, so it keeps them grounded. Yeah. They, they stay grounded despite it all. And, um, 
I think they always, you know, expected that I would surround myself with people who were grounded and down to earth and like had a similar moral compass and also, of course, a you know, similar sense of humor and like joie de vivre that, that I have as well. So I think there's, there's definitely something in that origin story. I think there's also, I definitely, you know, maybe when I was younger in life had like, and still obviously do, but definitely was like sort of like a bit of an anxious overthinker and still <laughs> to overcome, He's overcome that as we killer. do. But, <laughs> but I think there's something about like, over time, I think my imposter syndrome has started to recede a little bit. Like, and I still have, it yeah. I'm like, why am I being the one to ask to like, tell Jen what urban planning is like? <laughs> Cause you're so awesome. Fun. And you've worked here for but, so long, you know, but so yeah, much. I think there's like, there's some moments in the past few years in particular where I'm like, Oh wait, like, I kind of know what I'm doing, <laughs> don't I? Yeah, I guess like, I guess sometimes people look to me for my opinion. I historically actually, despite the confidence, the confident aura yeah. you describe, I have it really hard. I find it really hard to like commit to an opinion on something. Um, mm. And I think cause it's like, A, like why me? Why should I be the one who's the loudest voice in the room? Like, why should I be the one who's like, you know, because I think my instinct is always to like listen and integrate and like try to find something mm -hmm. in the middle as opposed to like put a stake in the ground and like create a strong mm -hmm. view. And I go back and forth on figuring out like, is it better to be that listener and integrator or do I actually need to be like a little more often? Yeah. Maybe it's a mix of both. Yeah. I think it's a mix of both. And I think it's a wonderful thing to have this feeling of, I want to actually gather data and hear more from people. I think that's what makes a great leader is you're being willing to hear others' opinions, cover your own blind spots. And I think it's also so great to hear you go through the process in your head, which I go through this in my head as well. And I think so many of us do where we feel like, oh, but do I have enough to put a stake in the ground and, and yeah. have my own strong opinion? And I think nobody knows everything, right? And there's sometimes when having an opinion and taking a stand and moving forward on something is much more important. So for instance, your example with being in the school newspaper and you putting a stake in the ground and saying, you know what, these jokes are actually not acceptable. This is horrible. And here's why. And helping people see the reason why. And and then going one step further and showing, and here's how actually we can have tasteful jokes that are still funny. We don't have to be completely PC all the time, but here's kind of the boundaries and here's how we do it in a tasteful way. And you can apply that to so many other scenarios. Yeah, maybe it's not a opinion to putting a stake in the ground and like the way the process should unfold or how you yeah. shape a path forward. And also that's not to say you won't change your mind later on. Yeah. I think you may learn more things later on. Like for instance, uh, we know today that asphalt is terrible for the environment, totally. et cetera. And sure, we didn't know that before maybe, but now we do. Now we know that, you know what, maybe we should transition to more energy efficient fuel sources, et cetera. Yeah. And we can change our minds and get better and improve moving forward. This was wonderful. You're the best. I learned a ton today and I more importantly had a blast with you. So thank you. Thank you. This is, I'm thrilled to be here with you On and with the key, the keen ear of our uh, expert producer. Oh. <laughs> is he going to make a cameo? Do you no. want to make a cameo? <laughs> Thanks, Martin. 
<laughs> great. Thank you. I can't, I can't wait to listen to more of your power hours. So uh, let me know what the release schedule is and I'll uh, set up. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share.